welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Super grateful to have you and super grateful to have our special guest. We've got Dale Aguas from Turn Bikes. Dale, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you? I'm good, Chris. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the chat. Yeah, absolutely. Good to have you. I know we had spoken, uh, gosh, I think it was still during COVID or on Facebook Live and had a great conversation. And I remember that one vividly because we share so many great stories and everything. And great to great to have you on the podcast. Great to see you again. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this to this one. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And and first first off, thanks for having me on. And thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for what CCA does. I, I know I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm I trust that my kids and future generations will also appreciate it too. No problem. No problem. We can't do it without you as a supporter. So thank you, man. Yep. Dale, before we get started, when was the last time you went fishing? Oh, geez. Um, actually, <laughs> question. I, just got, <laughs> I just got back from South Carolina, dropping my daughter off at Charleston Southern University, well, actually in Somerville, where my sister lived. So I, I did go fishing uh, just a few days ago in her neighborhood in one of those ponds, and we caught several um, two to three pound catfish <laughs> just on a little night crawler. Nice, so nice. That's not bad. Yeah, yeah, and and before that, uh, so this is about uh, two weeks ago now. I, I did. Uh, we we went out um, towards Osborne from Long Beach area. So we didn't quite hit Osborne, but we we did well on the bluefin. Nice, very cool. Do you? I mean, I know you probably travel a lot, but do you make it a habit to try and go fishing wherever you end up going at all, or is this kind of just a one one off deal? When I, I do travel a lot, and when the opportunity presents itself, I definitely um, bring bring some gear with me. Take um, advantage. Yeah, I, I was just about three weeks ago. I was in Frankfurt, Germany. Unfortunately, I couldn't bring rod and reel, but every day we were riding to our venue about uh, eight miles or so along a river, and um, during probably. 10 rides, uh, I did see one person fishing, so I, I kind of scouted out. They were using um, kind of a little swim bait, and uh, so I thought that was pretty fun, but I, I didn't have a rod with me, but it, it sure could have um, uh, worked. You know, it, it's interesting, Dale. I, I don't know if this happens to you or not, but whenever I travel, um, you know, it, for some reason, whether it's just a, a guy fishing a pond or the beach when I see someone surf fishing or whatnot, or even just something as simple as like a billboard for either like a tackle company or a fishing show that's local or, or even like a tackle store and all that. For some reason, it just catches my eye every time it, uh, it never ceases to amaze me how just my eyes and my, uh, my senses just find something related to fishing whenever I, I go other places. Yeah, for sure. Same, same here, especially during the, we drove across the country pretty much on the I-40 and especially going through Oklahoma, Arkansas, um, th those areas and going to where my sister lives, which is right near Santee Cooper Lakes, Moultrie and Marion. Um, you know, I, I remember vividly watching shows um, growing up uh, with, with the anglers fishing these waters and I was just thinking, you know, I remember fishing with Orlando Wilson in the 80s, and 
he fished in Santee Cooper Lakes. I don't know if it was Moultrie or Marion, but he was catching huge catfish, and that's where I ate lunch the other day, and I was just thinking, man, I want to fish. I want to fish. <laughs> We're right <laughs> on the shore, literally, and I wanted to just wet a line, but I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll get my chance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we go any further, Dale, tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is. And I know we're going to get into turn bikes uh, and fishing in general in a, in a minute, but uh, tell us about uh, about Dale. Yeah, thank you. I'm a happy husband. Uh, my wife is Sarah. We have three kids. I work with uh, in an industry that I just love. I, I sell bikes. Just think about that. And, um, and, and I love fishing as a pastime. I fished a lot, um, you know, fresh and salt and still do. Um, so I'm, I'm fortunate to essentially ride and sell bikes as a career and fish with some really cool people and um, have a lot of friends in the fishing industry. Um, and, you know, it's a quid pro quo. Uh, they they um, take care of me with fishing stuff and I take care of them with bike stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting whenever it's like this, uh, what do you call it? It's almost like this camaraderie or even this cool guys club where if someone, if you're connected by fishing or by the fishing industry, it's like, we almost kind of find each other wherever we're at and we help each other out. And that's totally what the industry, the entire industry is all about too. Yep. Yep. And there's also, um, a lot of parallels between the two industries and so, and quite frankly, some similar challenges that both industries face, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's cool, man. So basically you, you, your fishing background is quite, I wouldn't say complex, but it's very extended. Um, before we kicked it on here, you know, I, I've known you as a saltwater fisherman. I get those, Get those uh, pictures of, of yourself with a monster bluefin every now and then from you, and um, but now I think you you mentioned that you've actually focused this year on surf fishing, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been the, the the bike industry is really really busy. So to take an extended vacation, and, and quite frankly, uh, my, my daughters are at an age that I, they need me, so. I haven't gone on um, some of the longer trips that I usually do. I, I was fortunate to get on an eight-day on the Independence last year. It was amazing. Um, but I haven't done much this year. So I've been saltwater or surf fishing because it's so easy to get to. And quite frankly, it's been a lot of fun, very productive this year. And as previous years, but this year in particular because I've been spending more time kind of honing in on certain areas and kind of learning what to do and quite frankly, what not to do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. How, how was that experience surf fishing versus saltwater? I mean, I guess general saltwater fishing, is it more or less the same for you or is it kind of different or a different unique challenge or whatnot? What, what was your outlook? I, I think it's the same thrill, you know, the, just the fact you, you gear up, you mentally prepare, you get your gear ready uh, and then just go. And when you hook up, whether it's, you know, a, a half pound surf perch or a 20 plus inch Corvina, it, it's, it's all fun. But it, it's, it's a similar thrill, you know, just to get out there. But what, one of the key differences 
is it's so quick. You know, I work 30 minutes from where, where I like to surf fish. I live about 35 or 45 minutes, depending on traffic from the same area. So it's, it's quick to get to. And quite frankly, if it's not producing, uh, I could just get in the car and go home. Or if it is producing, uh, I, I keep doing that one more cast. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe another 30 minutes of one more cast. That famous line, one more cast. <laughs> yeah. It's so relevant. But, yeah. And, and one, one thing that I, I've done this year, and for those of you who are listening who, who spend time surf fishing, I've gotten light. I fished a lot of four pound tests and ultralight rods. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I fish in the Southern California, quite frankly, in Los Angeles County. Um, and I've caught a, a fair, a, a lot of fish, but, um, some striped bass, which is really fun. And I, I think it's, that's not so common down here in LA, but, um, on four pound test and the ultra light rod, it's, it feels like, you know, that challenge of catching this big fish with light gear. So that's, that's been really fun. Very cool. And yeah, fishing the beach is definitely light gear and, and it's almost, would you say like kind of finesse fishing too? I don't do much um, surf fishing, so I'm kind of interested. Uh, to, to, to a degree. Yes. But it's more, it's not so much finesse in, in that four pound test is just a ticket and you're not going to get bid on six. It's more like you got to find them. You, you got to read the water, read the structure and kind of eliminate where not to fish because you could spend a lot of time on the sand fishing in unproductive water. But once you see the structure, once you see where the bait is, once you see certain signs, um, then all of a sudden you're honing in and it, you know, I, I take two rods. I, I put one in a backpack and and one, one I'm fishing with actively. So I'm just, I take two rods, fish with one. So I usually have one with four pound test and one with six or eight pound test. So I'm never going super heavy. Um, but it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's just that challenge of, you know, I, I've caught enough fish to, you know, I, I'm not here for the one fish or two fish, but I'm just here to have fun. And that yeah. four-pound test just makes it fun and more challenging to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to surf fishing, uh, you know, especially this year, was that just kind of the way it worked out for you and your schedule this year? Or did you kind of kind of, kind of wanted to, to dedicate this year to, I guess, more surf fishing? It, it, more more of a scheduling thing and just wa wanting to be home and and also just work requirements just i've been on the road a lot so i just don't have that time for the longer trips but yeah it, it's it's kind of like i take advantage of hey i have a few hours in the morning let's go regardless of the tide regardless of the condition because even if you catch nothing and you're just out there you know standing on the shore i think that's pretty special even if you skunk, you know, a lot of it's mindset. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When it comes to speaking of special, when it comes to fishing in general, I know fishing as probably, you know, definitely for me, most likely for you, it really is a special kind of, um, hobby. I would say not an activity, but a hobby. And I know 
when it comes to, I recall a, st- a great story of yours that you shared with me last time um, about how, you know, fishing kind of, it, it's really all about kind of connecting with your family, with your daughters and all that. And I'm sure, you know, for those listening out there, it probably has a special connection for you too. Um, w- would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Fishing, because, you know, the time that you spend between bites or even during an reeling in a fish, when you could spend it with a friend, family member, my, my daughter, my wife, uh, it, it's just really special. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of that fulfillment of, hey, we're going to fish here because of this reason. We're going to use this bait because of this reason. And then when it happens and to see their face, it's like, yeah, it worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doesn't always work, but I had a good amount of times this year where it has worked. Don't you love it when things work out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's awesome. So when it comes to, you know, let's kind of transition to the thing that kind of prevents you from fishing more, which is work. You work for Turn Bikes. Tell us a little bit, yep. a bit about the company and um, I guess kind of an overall view about your products. Because honestly, I've seen your products. I've, uh, you know, you've donated some to a couple banquets and a golf tournament recently. Super, super cool stuff, man. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. So thanks on that. Uh, so Turn Bikes, it's a global company and I am the territory manager for North America, the, the USA market, as well as Canada. And we, we do a nice line of urban bikes. And, you know, these are bikes that generally fold or electric bikes that are for family use, cargo bikes. Some people call them, some people call them family bikes. Um, and they, they range from as low as 549 but they go up in the $10,000 range as well. And wow. um, really what's moving the needle as far as um, bikes and mobility is these electric bikes are allowing people to, to commute and to also do a lot of, whether it's recreational type riding or commuting or, you know, reducing the number of the amount of trips in a car, the, these bikes are capable of hauling groceries, passengers, a combination of both, or just having a good time and getting some miles in. When it comes to, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen this too, I've seen just e-bikes, electric bikes, just completely explode in popularity. Um, you know, for, uh, people of all ages, mainly kids, but people of all ages, when, you know, I'm sure COVID had a crazy effect on your company, just like anyone else. But, I, you know, would you say that that kind of boosted that popularity for e-bikes or um or it just kind of accelerated it a little bit well yeah i would say accelerated would would be a good um way to describe it e-bikes were trending if you ever want to follow bikes and what's going on in the bike world quite frankly look at what's going on in europe and you'll see a trend of what the bike industry in the usa will be probably in a few years so e-bikes have been really trending well and quite frankly compared to non-electric bikes we like to call them acoustic bikes so compared to acoustic bikes the e-bike market has been growing at a really rapid rate whereas acoustic bikes have been flat or declining 
And when COVID hit, it took the e-bikes to the next level of popularity. And quite frankly, it also took acoustic bikes to the next level. Uh, rising tide raises all ships. So both segments uh, got really popular, but I would definitely say e-bikes uh, went to the next level. And I'm telling you, Chris, uh, I, so many nights during these past few years, I'm up till 11, 12, midnight, you know, just entering orders, answering emails. And uh, it, it, the business was incredible. And also, it, it still is. Uh, not not to the extent it was a year and a half ago, a year ago, but it still really is, um, I'd say, sizzling hot on the electric bikes. Acoustic bikes have softened a little bit, but yeah. I know you, uh, you know, I think turn really the big um, advantage of, you know, e-bikes e e are super cool to begin with, but also you guys have... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the majority of your bikes actually fold in half, which that is a huge, huge perk for, you know, for those, uh, what you would call an acoustic bike. I, I think that's such yeah. a cool feature. Yeah. Yeah. So think every one of our bikes, as you mentioned, has a special way to store it. And in other words, uh, many of our acoustic bikes fold. So the, the bike essentially folds in half, then the handlebar area, we call it the handle post, folds down. So essentially two hinges allow the bike to fold, and what that allows is easy to store. So think of a person who's commuting and goes, hey, I'm riding to my place of work, and I have a really nice bike. I don't want to lock it outside. Well, now you could take this bike, fold it, bring it inside, put it under your desk, next to your desk, uh, for a fisherman, put in the boat. And, you know, when you get to Catalina and want to ride around, you could. And and it didn't take much space on your on your boat. So there's, there's a lot of cool uh, functionality like that. But our electric bikes, even the, the ones that are for cargo and family, they don't necessarily fold in half. However, they store vertically. So literally apply the rear brake, walk backwards. It stands on the rear rack straight up and down. So it takes very little space, very little footprint. So a lot of people enjoy that because when they store it at home or a garage or the workplace, they could store it inside with very little space taken up as compared to even a regular bike. But think about it, this bike that takes little space, like basically the space of a lampstand can take a the rider and two passengers and a load of groceries, and yet it could it, it stores very small. So people um, love that um, functionality. And then we have the accessories to help you do, you know, carry the passengers, carry the load, carry the groceries, and things like that. So that's 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 really fun. So it's almost like a tackle shop. You know, they're not like they don't. Well, it's not just about selling the rod and reel. It's about selling the braid, about selling the line, selling the jigs, and, and, and all the terminal tackle that goes with it to create this experience for, for a fisherman. So similar to us, we it's not just about a, giving you a good bike and easy to store and, and really functional, but it's also the other things that go with it 
to give you the ability to have a great experience when using the bike. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to the bike and, and, and all that, you're right. It's, it's more of an experience. And for some people, it could very well be, um, I guess for lack of a better word, their vehicle or their utility, um, their tool to get to work or to and from work or even going down to the landing at some point. That's right. I saw uh, one of the last times I was at uh, Point Loma at the at the big three at the landings there. I saw one of our bikes and I asked Lori at, uh, you know, in the American Angler office. I said, hey, Lori, is that one of whose bike is that? Uh, chained up and she, she didn't know, but I, I thought it was pretty fun to see one of our bikes there. That was my next question. Have you seen one of the bikes at the landings or even on a boat before? Yeah, yeah. So that, that that's pretty cool. Yes, I have, and I literally right before uh, about a week and a half ago, I ate at the Twenty Second Street Landing restaurant right above Twenty Second Street Landing. So right. you know, admiring the boats, eating dinner, and then you know, just went on a little walk along the walkway right there, and a person was um, walking with a bike, and he was with his spouse, and lo and behold, it was one of our bikes. So it, it's really cool to see one of your bikes in the wild. You know, we're, we're a smaller brand. We're not one of the largest brands, but we're, we're one of those within the industry. We're one of those hotter brands where we fly under the radar, but people who know the brand really, really enjoy it. And, and I know just working here, it's a fun place to be. Yeah, I bet. I bet for sure. When it comes to the bikes. I don't know if too many people know this, or maybe everyone knows this, and I just learned about this a couple of years ago, but one of the big players in the biking industry happens to be Shimano. Yes. We, we use a lot of their components on our bike, and um, they, they make from, from low-end, entry-level, to high-end, you, you know. So similar to their fishing gear, um, you, you know, you could find it at a really affordable price or you, you look at some of the higher end stuff and you go, holy cow, if, you know, if you don't know fishing, you know, why would somebody spend hundreds of dollars for that stick, right? <laughs> or what's so different about that reel that makes it four digits? So yeah, yeah, Shimano is definitely one of the um, big component manufacturers in the uh, bike industry. That's cool. That's a great connection. And, you know, I'm sure that's probably, you know, did, did you come across um, or did you envision yourself in the bike industry because of companies like Shimano or you just happened to be um, in, in in that industry? I, 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 <laughs> I'm definitely dating myself here, but <laughs> I grew up loving outdoors, whether it's just grabbing a stick thread and bend a needle and put a piece of cheese on the hook and fish a local stream and where I grew up in New York or riding a bike and, you know, just riding the trails on very inexpensive bike. But I eventually began um, bike racing or racing on the road. And um, I, I worked in the industry since 1986. And here we are in 2022. I'm still doing it, still having a lot of fun. So it's, it's been a very fulfilling career. Very cool. Very cool. When it comes to the biking industry itself, I'm sure you've probably had your own um, 
not struggles, but challenges throughout the pandemic and all that, just like the fishing industry have, I'm sure probably, you know, uh, I know Shimano went through it as, and same with every other tackle company and everything. I'm sure you probably went through some supply chain issues and, you know, you probably couldn't make enough bikes to, to meet all the demand from COVID. Right. That's exactly right. So yeah, certainly there were, what, what it was similar to toilet paper, you know, <laughs> yeah, one day it's very available, all these different brands. And then all of a sudden this crazy surge, this demand came very quickly. So the industry wasn't able to respond. So that's why you had that. Okay. So the mentality was, uh, you know, you buy your specific toilet paper at a specific price for whatever reason. And then at some point it shifted to I'll buy whatever I can get because it's the only thing I can get. And it became like that in, I don't know, in the fishing world and in, in the bike industry, because especially during the pandemic, activities like cycling or fishing were very um, good activities where you can quote unquote social distance, right? Um, so, you know, think about surf fishing or think about riding a bike. You're kind of on your own, you know, unless you do a group ride. But um, the perfect it social distance. Families to do it. So, yeah, it became really hot. So the factories weren't able to produce enough um, in that short period of time. Um, generally speaking, bike industry uh, for bicycles lead times at at six month lead time would be phenomenal um a lot of lead times are about a year so you're talking if you did not have your orders placed before covid hit you were you did not have a lot of inventory to sell during the hottest period of time uh, for your industry um so that that's where this it kind of became that toilet paper craze for bikes and so and, and raw materials were affected you know it wasn't so much we are we are looking for stainless steel and aluminum as an industry and competing with each other we were competing with tesla and toyota and nissan and apple and you know all these other mm-hmm. industries looking for the same computer chips for the same aluminum and the same uh steel so that, that was really tough. And then, of course, things get stuck in shipping. And so you, even if you could get it produced, the other challenge in the supply chain was shipping. It was hard to get containers. The containers were moving slow at ports, you know, especially if you fish out of the Southern California area or really any port during that COVID time. You know, you come back at night and you think, man, what's that new island? Like, why? why? And it's not an island. It's ships, <laughs> container ships sitting outside of the harbor, you know, waiting for their turn to unload. So well, that, that was really challenging. Yeah. I can imagine you were probably looking off that coast. Uh, I think it was a year ago. Yeah. Um, and probably seeing pretty much, you could probably say to yourself, there are bikes on that ship, on that ship, and yeah. that, and that container is crazy. <laughs> I fish out of Long Beach a lot, whether surf or <clears throat> um, out of my on my friend's boat. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, you better believe that. And and ironically, I call my you know my friends in the fishing industry. I, I, I we always talk about hey, what ports are you using? Where where's your stuff stuck? You know, so a, a lot oh, of people use Long Beach and Southern California areas that we go through the same challenges. So I was, you know, I, I I hit up a few of my friends for some gear during COVID, and it was abundantly clear. Do not ask anymore. They don't have it, <laughs> and you, you know, yeah, and, and 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 vice versa. So they hit me up. Oh, I could get that for you, but it's gonna be. Can you wait a year? You know, can you wait yeah. six months at least? So that that, that was. Pretty fun. I, oh yeah, I, I can understand that because I would go. You know, so uh, we work with a lot of manufacturers, and a lot of manufacturers are sponsors of ours and everything. And you know, all of a sudden, like you know, I, I'd put in my orders or, or something, and half of them would just be polite about it and say, "Yeah, we don't have this. Sorry." Others would just basically laugh, laugh and say, "Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see you in a year." <laughs> but yeah. it has. Um, I mean, I can imagine, I would hope that think that things have improved since then, like today, right? Yes, yes. So a lot of the production ha- has caught up um, to, to a degree. I, I'd summarize it in things that were hot and hard to get before COVID are still hot and hard to get. And these are, for, for us, electric bikes. Things that were soft, but because of COVID became really hot, are back to, you know, not so hot. They're, they're back to kind of where they were before COVID. And so as such, many, many bike brands and bike manufacturers have an abundance of kind of your mid-range bike because a lot of us got it at the same time. And also the market softened a little bit in these categories. So now, you know, there's kind of this term called COVID whiplash. So there is an overabundance of certain segments of inventory. And then, but other parts of inventory are just, you can't get enough. And they're so hard to find and so hard to get. It takes so long on lead times. Right, right. You know, going back to shipping and all that, I'm starting to think Long Beach, you know, it's probably one of the most, if not the most uh, busiest port on the West Coast. But outside of Long Beach, there really isn't too many options. I think there's probably one in the Bay Area and maybe even Seattle, but that that's about it, right? Yeah, yeah. On our West Coast, you know, as far as what we use, and I'm certain there, there are more, but we... we you know, a lot of the bike industry uses Long Beach, L.A., um, Oakland, then Seattle, and then also actually Vancouver, um, British Columbia. And then we, we have routed um, some orders to the East Coast, even though from a, when you look at a map it, from where our factories are, it doesn't make sense. But quite frankly, because it was a, you know, you could get it there faster because of all the delays uh, we, we did use some East Coast sports, and quite frankly, East Coast of Canada. We've even gone there, but we, we basically trust our logistics company to help route that. You know, I, I, I know bikes. I know bikes really, really well. But as far as you know, which port, which line, which trade lines do you use? Um, we, we let our logistics provider handle that. But 
a lot of long, a lot of it did go through Long Beach. And man, when it was at its peak and I was surf fishing or, you know, in my friend's boat, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too. There are just so many container ships out there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I kind of see, you know, your bikes and kind of fishing tackle is kind of more or less the same, or not the same, but basically facing the same struggles, the same challenges when it comes to importing and exporting and all that. Would you mind running us through like the whole, because getting a bike from the factory all the way stateside, it's got quite a bit of logistics uh, attached to that. Would you mind running through that real quick? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I do this all the time with our dealers so they can have an understanding. So so remember, things have to be ordered, right? So you have to forecast. And then the, the factories have to order all the things for the bill of material. So think of a bicycle, think of a fishing reel. It's ball bearings, it's screws, it's the bale, it's the side plates, it's the drag washers, all of that for bikes. There's probably quite a bit more. You're talking wheels, hubs, spokes, rims, tire, you know, all the rubber on a bike. So they have to gather all of that and essentially schedule a build time before all of this arrives. And once it builds, it's that's kind of the quicker part. Once everything is there and the schedule, it's scheduled time, they will build it. And the, these factories are so efficient that they build and right after they box it, it literally goes straight into a container. So these factories are not optimized to store things. So they go right into a container. So they schedule all of this. And then that container goes to the respective port uh, of export. And then, you know, it, it's already scheduled in advance where it's going to go. And so some of the challenges were, if some of those items on the bill of materials, whether for a reel or whether for a bicycle, if some of those materials were short or, um, you know, if you ordered 10,000, but you only got 4,000, then you can only build 4,000, you know? And then if, if something was late and it's a critical item that you can't substitute for, uh, which a lot of bike parts are, you can't substitute because we're talking safety, um, then you have to wait. Yeah. Then your orders get delayed or they can only build 40% of your order because they only receive 40% of the breaks, you know, something like that. And containers were so hard to get that, you know, just imagine this manufacturer that can build a container's worth of bikes, but there's no container to put them in. They're not optimized for storage. Remember that. So that's a problem logistically over there. And they have to, you know, put bikes where they don't want to put them. And what if it rains? What if it, what if they run out of space? Um, what if the container is late? And, you know, what if there's a storm? Or quite frankly, and all of these things happen, what if, what if there's a surge of COVID in the factory? And all, believe me, we went through all of these things. And so some of them were still going through. Um, so once it leaves uh, the respective port, it sails by ocean. So if you're talking, like if the if it's coming from Asia to the West Coast, it's about a three-week journey by sea. And then it has to clear the respective port. So before COVID, they call that the dwell time. The dwell time 
was sometimes as short as a week, but one to two weeks uh, from, from at least our, our shipments. Uh, it became, early on in COVID, it became one to two months, and then it, it got to a longer than that. And while that was happening, prices skyrocketed on all every aspect of shipping. So things, costs have gone up on the back end of things. So if you've seen fishing gear increase in price or bicycles increase in price, believe me, no brand is looking to increase just because. There, there is a reason on the back end, and a lot of it has to do with shipping. Um, the, the import costs are, have, have been ridiculous, and they still are, quite frankly. We saw little pockets of time where they did decrease a little bit, but overall, it's probably four to five x uh, compared to pre-COVID pricing. That's that's crazy. Wow. Um, so once once it gets to the port, it has to clear, get loaded onto either a truck, and, and it has to go to a chassis, then connected to a truck, or has to go onto a chassis, then to a train. And that you know, chassis were hard to get a hold of truck drivers were, were, you know, so busy. So there was a lot of congestion caused by that. And if it was on a railroad uh, from West Coast to the Midwest, as an example, it's probably going on Union Pacific. And in this past year and a half, the, the, the congestion at the rail yards on the other end, um, you know, Union Pacific, these terminals were stuffed to the gills. And the amount of drivers and chassis on the other end of the railroad were very few and far between. So it took, like some of our containers sat in Chicago. Our, we have a warehouse in, in Illinois. Some of our containers sat in Chicago for four months after sitting in Long Beach for two months. So you're talking six months where before it could have been six weeks. So, wow. yeah, and, and all of that. Like all that sitting time, all that time that a container set, guess what? Somebody's paying for it, right? Somebody's paying for the storage. Somebody's paying late fees because your free days of storage are gone. So, so not only was it delayed, it costs more because of the delays. <laughs> Gosh, when it rains, it pours, or if it's not one thing, it's the other. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and I know. For uh, believe me, I express these frustrations to some of my fishing industry <laughs> friends, and they're going, "I'm right with you," and our containers are probably right next to yours. And so we would bounce ideas off each other as far as like, "Hey, what are some kind of creative ways to get around this?" And ultimately, we just had to phase the music and pay the piper. Really, there, what other options are there? You, you charter your own ship. You know, we send a Royal Polaris to Asia to pick up a container, <laughs> you know. When it comes so. to those containers, would basically, you had mentioned that the containers, that they were short of containers over uh, overseas. Is that because of all of the backlogs, the log jams that we were facing over here? We're, they're just over here and they just can't get them over there? It's a little bit of everything. Again, going back to the toilet paper, there was so much at a short period of time that whatever inventory was available was used, and and it was used quickly. So they weren't they weren't able to recover, 
And because of raw materials, you know, you can't just build more containers super quickly, though, though they were able to build some. It was more like, do we repair all these old rickety containers, which did happen as well? It, it was just inventory. It was just supply and demand. The um, supply was not there because the demand was so high. So as such, prices increased. All the timing of everything increased. Um, but what was neat, in a weird way, is everybody faced the same thing. It wasn't just Turnbikes or Okuma or Shimano or Phoenix. It was everybody. We're all in literally and figuratively the same boat during those times. So, yeah. you know, that, so our dealers, consumers were understanding. So that, that was kind of the neat part where everybody really understood. And we're still facing a, a lot of it. You know, for, for the bike industry, it's probably going to still take a few years on the hot, the hotter product. It's probably a few years away before we really recover because the challenge was, we like b- before COVID, if you ordered 10 bikes from us, I, I'd probably be able to ship 8 to 10 bikes. If you ordered 20 line items of parts and accessories, I could probably ship 18 to 20 of those lines. Our fill rates were phenomenal. COVID nice. emptied our warehouse, you know. So during COVID, you order 10 bikes, I might have been able to send you one or zero. And we just had to wait. You just had to get in a back order line allocation and just wait your turn. And, you know, inventory came in eventually, but they were pre-sold. So our warehouses are uh, on a lot of items are still zero, but manufacturing is pretty good. So we, we get them in and turn them around. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know quite a few tackle companies and, and tackle stores too, even, I mean, pre-sold is a new, no, I mean, it's always been around, but it's a common term nowadays for sure yeah. um, when it comes to allotment and everything. But speaking of bikes, let, let's kind of get into to bikes a little bit more. When it comes to a turn bike, I'm ready to get into the market. I'm ready to, to buy a bike and all that. Um, do you have any recommendations as to, you know, for those of us that are just getting into biking or those that, um, you know, need one for commuting or, or something, or even just going down to, uh, <coughs> Mitch's seafood in, in Point Loma and, uh, grabbing some fish and chips. What are your recommendations, man? Well, the clam chowder is really good there too. So don't uh, undercut the clam chowder, please. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, but anyhow, anyhow, you know, and, and I'll even speak be bigger than turn. You know, I, if I, I'm a consumer and I'm looking for a, a bike, whether electric bike or acoustic bike, one of my first recommendations, and I get asked this all the time since I've been in the industry for ages, um, I always tell them, figure out what your budget is. And, and you know, similar to a fishing reel, well, what, what are you going to buy? Are you going to buy a $99 reel or are you going to buy a $600 reel? Right. So stick within your budget because it's your budget, not mine. And uh, you, you don't want to go in, in debt over some of these things. Right. So stick with your budget first. And, and that will kind of at least narrow the window of the product you're going to re- really be happy with budget wise and performance wise. But after that, it gets really simple to me. Visit your local retailer. Ride the bikes. Ride them. 
some bikes fit differently and it's very similar to fishing reels, fishing rods. A different, different strokes for different folks, right? So some people are looking for a longer rod, slower, more parabolic. Some people want that faster rod. Some people want that smaller reel with this specific handle. Some people go, I, I want level one. I, I don't want to do that thing with my fingers. Some people are looking to use 90% braid with a short top shot of mono fluoro. Some people are looking, you know, 50% mono because they want to cast their jig and not without the knot going through the guides. Similar thing in bikes. Not everybody's looking for the same thing, but really, if it doesn't fit you well, I guarantee no matter how good the bike is, technically, if it doesn't fit you well, you're not going to be comfortable. Your back's going to hurt, your knees, your neck. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't inspire confidence for a rider. So maybe ride one, they experience that. Ride two, they experience it again. There might not be a ride three. And, you know, I, I want people, like, you know, whether it's our bikes or other bikes, you should want to ride. And so this bike needs to fit you well. So I recommend go into a store ride the bike now now people will go well i could buy bikes from online and dot com this and dot com that i recommend go to your local retailer support your support your local business and um, ride the bike they are also professionals at assembling the bike keeping you safe one of the fundamental differences in in fishing as compared to bikes quite frankly is what what's the worst case scenario in fishing line breaks reel freezes up rod breaks an eyelet on your guide breaks and you know and you got to put it away and get it fixed on a bike we're talking about safety liability um, bikes are a lot of times ridden with traffic and cars so you need to stay safe and brakes and things like that so you want your bike to be tuned up and prepped well from day one. Last thing you want to do is, you know, be riding your bike and you go to apply your brakes and quite frankly, they don't work well and you, you crash. You, maybe you get hurt. Um, you know, that's the last thing you want. So go into your local shop, being able to ride it, feel things like that. Very important. And, and, you know, because you narrowed your budget, there's only X amount of bikes that will fit that window. Now, granted, if the salesperson is good, suppose you're, you know, you go, oh, I'm looking for a bike that's between $1,500 and $1,800. The salesperson is probably going to put you on a $2,000 bike or a $2,500 bike. You're going to fall in love with it and see what you could do to stretch your budget. That's not uncommon. But I, I really do encourage you, go into a store, ride the bikes. If you are shopping for electric bikes, which is the craze, which is where it's really, really popular, I encourage you to look for a bike and, you know, a system, the electric system that is UL approved. So Underwriters Laboratory, so th this is a safe bike. It's tested. Um, so, so you know that um, these batteries, these... Uh, Electrical systems work well and they're safe. Is, so is UL kind of like the regulators for bikes? Yeah, yeah, they, they create certain standards for testing. And so, you know, if, if something is not UL, then you kind of go, hmm, I wonder why it's not, because you should. 
you, you know. So fortunately, like the the, the systems, <coughs> excuse me, the systems we use on our bikes are all UL approved, and um, you know, so we know they're dependable. We know they're reliable, and um, yeah, so you want that for yourselves and your families, and when you're buying a bike, so I, I'd look for that. Very cool. I, are, I honestly have not looked, but are there bike shops kind of like as frequent as tackle stores all around like local communities and all that? Yes, that's, that's one of the fun similarities between the bike industry and fishing. Your shops, the, the retailers that represent your brand are, are so important, right? Because they reflect. So if, if we have retailers that, quite frankly, are jerks, that reflects on the brands that they carry. And so, yeah, yes, there are bicycle shops um, just like there are tackle shops. And, you know, a lot of them, some, some of them are older, like the family businesses. Some of them are newer and more like, you know, when you go in, they look more like an art gallery than, you know, a mess of bikes with a lot of chains and grease around the shop. They're, they're beautiful stores where... They, they have inventory in the back, but the, these these are professionals. They're good at what they do. Um, some special, you know, and, and it's very similar to fishing. Some specialize in road bikes and mountain bikes. Some specialize in the electric. Just like some, some stores are great for fly fishing, but you ask them for a jig stick and they will send you to the other shop down the street. Very cool. That's actually good. Really good known. That's really, really good advice too. And, you know, I agree. I think, you know, going into this episode, I kind of knew about similarities between the fishing industry and biking and all that, but really, you know, after our conversation, there's actually a lot of, a lot more similarities than I originally thought of. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. Um, Let's talk a little bit of fishing before we get you out of here. But uh, what is your favorite kind of fishing, and what are, what kind of gear are you are you typically using? Are you conventional spinning, bait casting, you name it? Well, what's uh, what kind of fishing do you like to do? Um, for surf fishing, I literally have like at, right at my desk. I have three Okuma ITX reels. 2,500, a 3,000, and a 4,000. So a little plug for our friends at Okuma. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I, I use spinning reels pretty exclusively for surf. and But once I get on a boat, um, it's, it's usually, you know, bait caster or open face or uh, two-speed stuff, more of the conventional. My, my personal favorite, if, if I could cast a surface iron for puddling yellowtail and hook up on the retrieve, that, that's my favorite. Um, did a lot of that at Alejos last year and have been fortunate to do some of the Cedros uh, fly-in trips with Rosie at Cedros Sport Fishing. So that, I, I'd say that's my favorite. But to be honest with you, whether it's two-pound tests for little trout or two-speed reels for the big tuna and everything in between, I really do enjoy it all. I, I find a lot of um, enjoyment in any type of fishing, really. just It's just that time spending on the water and, and, you know, being, you know, the possibility of catching something phenomenal or really just, you know, kind of the small catfish out of the local pond 
walking distance from my sister's house. It, it, it's all fun. For sure. How'd you like Cedros? Amazing. Amazing. What, what, what a phenomenal operation from, from meeting Rosie at, at the airport to all the way to the fishing and the, um, <laughs> the food was phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Every aspect is just beautiful. Yeah, for sure. I went to Cedrus for the first time last year and uh, I could not explain it any better than you just did. It's just absolutely amazing. It's an amazing experience. Fishing's not too bad either. I mean, we, we went down <laughs> for, um, for basically they, they call it trophy hunting. Um, at least mm-hmm. a couple years ago, they started doing that for bluefin. We did it for bass and, uh, it did not disappoint. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal bass fishing. Uh, <laughs> went through a lot of plastics, uh, clear with red flake, went through a lot of that. There was a lot of red crap when I was there. So yeah, they, they, um, literally, literally tore it up. <laughs> oh yeah. I could only imagine. I think, um, and then also you, you mentioned that you went to down to the rock. So I'm guessing you probably do some long range fishing too. Yeah, yeah. I love, you know, especially when the five-day trips were around where you can go to Cedros. That was my single favorite type trip, you know, fish offshore a day, fish on the way back and fish Cedros for two days. I I love that fishing. So, um, but yeah, yeah, I did an eight-day trip um, with the Independence. Mr. Landfill was running the boat and we had a great time. caught a good number of yellowtail down at the rocks. Um, it was a little bit early for the Wahoo then, but a lot of dropper dropper loop fishing at night in the dark was, that was amazing. Call grouper too. That um, is the first and only grouper I've ever caught. Uh, talk about good table fare. That was pretty special. You said you were using dropper loop for da- deep down on a long range trip. Yeah, yeah, we were, we were going 100-pound um, tests. You, you know, it was one of those, get to Alejos, fish all day, catch bait after dinner, mm-hmm. right after the bait, just pin one on, send it down with a 16-ounce sinker on your 100-pound rig, and hold on for life. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we got bit, and we got bit well. And when we ran out of live bait, they just fill, fill, filleted the, the, the bait that we caught, uh, the Spanish Max, and... Uh, we used, we just used literally either side of the fillet or the 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 head and the tail section, and they bit it all. They bit it all. Wow, that's so cool. I mean, I I have not done long range yet. I hope to do it in the future, but uh, I cannot wait. I know it's uh, it's going to be good, no matter whether it's a five day or six day, and even longer. I think the longest I've seen is like a nineteen or twenty one day in in the past, but um, it's crazy, man. <laughs> For sure. One more before we let you go, Dale. Um, You know, I I personally think that it's kind of important, at least for our industry, for for those that fish and, and, um, you know, participate in the industry and all that. I kind of feel that it's important that I support businesses um, that have a connection to the industry. Um, whether it's their employees love to fish, they support CCA, they support the industry and so forth, or Rallo or anything like that. Um, I, I feel that that's kind of important. And I think Turn, um, 
falls in that category because I'm sure you and and your colleagues there they all love to fish and um, you, you know I think it's just it's just good overall for the industry and um, I'm kind of curious to see or to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like-minded folks, right? So you know we we we've donated to CCA because we we believe in what you guys do. We we appreciate your care and attention to the industry, to its sustainability. And, um, you know, it, it goes, like I said in, in the beginning, I, I appreciate it, but I know my kids will appreciate it and our future generations will appreciate it. And uh, it, it's it's needed. And, um, yeah. That's cool, man. I definitely appreciate all of your support, all of the uh, turn bike support, too, of CCA. Definitely, definitely appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, likewise, Chris. Well, before we let you go, man, um, one more time, how do we get our hands on a turned bike? How do we come in contact with you? How do we get to go fishing with you? All that stuff. Yeah, awesome. It is basically turn bicycles, and that's T-E-R-N, like turn the bird that you're looking for when you're offshore and trying to find fish. So turnbicycles.com. If you're looking for your local retailer, just go to the dealer section, plug in your area, your, your zip code, and you'll find your local retailer. Uh, you could email us with any questions at north.america at turnbicycles.com. If you want to uh, route it to me specifically, just put attention, Dale. I am uh, one person away from who receives that email. Okay, so just put attention, Dale, if you have any questions for me. Or, you know, anything you want to ask, you want to talk about jig selection, you want to talk about um, spreader bars or Mad Mac trolling speed, or you want to talk about bicycles, let's talk. I know, we didn't even get into that, but yeah, it's, (laughs) yeah, for sure. I know I'm definitely going to be hitting you up for sure. Anything new and exciting coming up down the pipeline for turn or anything that we need to to be aware about or, or anything to look out for? Yeah, especially for those of you who haven't ridden a bike for a while and they're kind of intimidated, or may- maybe you feel like you've aged out of a bike. You are probably one of, in the underserved group by the bike industry because often we think of sport, we think of high end. You are not forgotten. And we have a bike coming out this fall called the NBD. It's a series of bikes, especially for people who it's hard to mount a bike. It's hard to stick your leg literally up and over the seat to get over the bike. So it's a very easy bike to mount. And once you ride it, you're going to go, wow, this is so easy to ride. And yeah, that's a bike to look out for this coming fall. NBD. Nice. Did you release that at ICAST this year? (laughs) I wish I went to ICAST this year, but I was in Germany right after it. But no, we released it at uh, basically our version of ICAST called Eurobike. It was in Frankfurt, Germany. So um, consumers and retailers alike were able to go and, and we had really, really good feedback. That was really nice. But yeah, it should be coming into uh, the U.S. market um uh, later this fall, uh, actually, I take that back. Some of the samples will be available for, uh, you know, at certain events we'll be attending late this fall. Um, but realistically, inventory of that bike will arrive first quarter of next year. That's what we're looking at. Turn Fair enough. 
Very cool, man. Dale, appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. I know it's been, it's great to hear you. Great to uh, be with you and uh, definitely have to get out fishing sometime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Let, let's get out there. For sure. For sure. We have to take advantage of all this yellowtail and Dorado that's around. It's plentiful right now. <laughs> Kelp patties. Yeah. 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 Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure to go and subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. We certainly do appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. We will see you guys next week. Thank you.